Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. Help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 22nd, 2021. On this week's show, The New Yorker's Louisa Thomas will join us to discuss tennis's Australian Open with its quarantines and the fans and then the no fans and then the fans again and big wins for Naomi Osaka and Novak Djokovic. We'll also discuss how the NBA's G League is changing the pro and college basketball development model and we'll scrutinize Timberwolves rookie Anthony Edwards' huge dunk and name our favorite dunks of all time. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn, season four on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn, season three and six, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Good morning, y'all. Joel, I wanted to ask you, um, you wrote a piece over the weekend about some of the volunteer work you were doing in Texas, where you're from, and um, just, well, A, people should read the piece, um, which was great, but B, if you had any thoughts on what's been going on down there, or any, like, advice for people who are interested in helping out. Uh, Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously, what happened in Texas is terrible. Uh, I go into that a little bit in the piece. You know, it's really discouraging to see people be let down by their government in, in this way. Uh, you know, it's really distressing to talk to people, and including people you love, and know that they're suffering and that there are ways to prevent it and that the state simply has uh, neglected to do that year after year after year. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it just kind of feels like it's a, a collision of crises. You know, every every few years there's something going on down there. But, but beyond that, yeah, so I, me and my wife uh, volunteered. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, the 2018 Democratic Senate candidate in Texas, is doing phone banking. Anybody from out of state, anywhere, can call in, and all it takes is a couple of hours and a good, you know, Wi-Fi line, and uh, you can call and check on people, you know, seniors, um, other vulnerable Texans who need help right now, and you know, try to get them water, uh, direct them to warming shelters, whatever. So. That's one thing. And you can also follow Beto O'Rourke on Twitter. He's still, you know, doing these initiatives throughout the week. And I'd also like to recommend, you know, folks going to Texas Tribune, uh, which has been doing great coverage uh, this past week, but also has a uh, a post with, that, you know, shows all the many different, you know, volunteer efforts going on around the state or ways you can, you know, send money to people down there that are really in need. Because uh, even though the weather has turned and people are going back outside, there's still a lot of need down there. Um, okay, thanks, Joel. And we'll put links to that stuff on our show page so folks can find it. For me, the Australian Open has always felt like a universe, much like our own, but a little off. 
matches happening in the middle of the night Eastern time in broiling heat while I'm bundled under blankets. This year, there was even more cognitive dissonance. Fans in the stands over there, well, I guess there are sometimes fans in the stands here, but over there, they're actually being responsible about it. In the middle of the tournament, Melbourne went into lockdown because of just a handful of COVID cases, and the tournament sent crowds home. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, all the players had to quarantine before they started to play. Some of them, including women's finalist Jennifer Brady, were actually placed into hard quarantine for two weeks, meaning they couldn't go outside or even crack open a window for any reason. After all of that, with fans back in the stands for the end, um, the tournament came to a close with a pair of unsurprising champions. 23-year-old Naomi Osaka won her fourth Grand Slam and her second in a row, beating Brady in the final and dominating Serena Williams in the semis. 33-year-old Novak Djokovic won his 18th slam. That's now two behind both Federer and Nadal for the all-time record. He beat Daniil Medvedev in the final, and he overcame, somehow, a torn oblique suffered during his third-round match against American Taylor Fritz. Joining us now is the New Yorker's Louisa Thomas. Hey, Louisa. Hey. Let's start with Naomi Osaka. You wrote that her win over Serena last week felt like a passing of the torch. Uh, What did you see in that match and in that moment? Um, I saw a player who was the best player in the world playing someone who is still one of the best players in the world, but no longer has quite the hold on the tennis tour that she once did. Um, Naomi Osaka was fantastic. And one of the things that made her so incredible was that she wasn't playing her best. Um, She wasn't serving well. She was hitting a lot of errors. She was at times very visually, vividly nervous. Um, And yet she still managed to control that match Basically, once she broke Serena back and, and took command, she she just didn't really look back. Serena is famous for playing her best on big points. That's what Osaka is doing now. You know, Serena Williams beat, I would say, the players who had been playing the second and third best tennis on tour, um, Simona Halep and Arena Sabalenka, coming into the tournament. So this is not a story about how Serena just doesn't belong in the game anymore by any means. It's a story about how Naomi Osaka is really kind of separating herself as as a very real um, force to be reckoned with um, in the kind of mold of Serena, who is her idol. Yeah, I think uh, more than one person said that what Osaka did to Serena looked like what Serena used to do to her sister and everybody else. It was just that force of will and not yielding. Um, Somebody on Twitter posted four screenshots of, of from Osaka's four Grand Slam championships where she either was facing match point or was down a set and trailing by one or two games with the threat of going down even further. So it's this, this growth that I think that we've seen in Osaka mentally, certainly in addition to the physical and tennis prowess, right? Absolutely. I mean, I actually think that's one of the things that's so appealing about Osaka is that when she first became U.S. Open champion, I mean, obviously that was match was in 2018 at the U.S. Open was very much overshadowed by the confrontation between Serena Williams and the umpire. And but you know, at that point, she was she was in tears. I mean, she was not you know she, by her own admission, she was not really sure how to handle 
not only the moment, but the, the big stage. I mean, she was, um, you know, she, she described herself as shy and she described herself as, as you know, not quite ready for what was coming later on looking back. You know, and now we've seen someone who has really embraced her role, um, not only in tennis, but in, in a more kind of globally vivid way. And yeah, she has an incredible confidence, incredible self-assurance. And that's both um, true off the court and it's true very much um, in those big moments when she is, has her back against the wall, she really produces her best tennis. Louisa, you, you said, um, and as Josh mentioned in the intro, that you know this felt like a passing of the torch. So... Uh, for somebody who is very much a novice to the game, right, um, and still trying to learn it, what's under what circumstances would it take for Serena to beat Naomi now? Because, you know, I did watch a little bit of that match, and, you know, Serena just doesn't move very well anymore. But it's not like Naomi is some unassailable, unbeatable number one in the mold of Serena, you know, a decade ago or whatever. So, like, do you, what would it take for Serena to beat Naomi at this point in her career? Well, Serena was actually moving quite well coming into that match. Osaka did a lot of things to kind of stop her movement. Um, Osaka has disguises her shots really well. She was hitting the ball behind Serena. I mean, she was doing a lot of things to kind of unsettle Serena. Yeah, Osaka nearly went out of the tournament. She faced two match points against um, Garbina Muguruza. Like, it, there's no question that she is not unbeatable. But, you know, coming out of those two match points, she won the next 22 points. I mean, against Serena when she double faulted and basically threw away a game in the second set. She won the next eight points to win the championship. She just has that kind of medal within her. And it's, you know, we, we can get carried away talking about intangibles, but, um, you know, it really does, the numbers sort of back her up in that. She has a really big serve. Serena would have to wish that she had a bad serving day, as Osaka actually did um, against her. Serena would have to have a great serving day, which she's certainly capable of. And, you know, she would sort of, I think that Serena if she had played the way she had shown even in this tournament, can play, um, you know, it, it really would have been a match. But I think that one of the cards that Serena has always held is that she comes into all these matches, you know, with a kind of aura. And Halep referred to her as a legend. She actually cut off a question to sort of correct, the, not correct, but, you know, kind of amend the transcript to, you know, when the interviewer referred to her, she said, you know, legend, you know. And, and there is that, that sense when, Halep comes in, even though Halep is capable of playing her test best tennis against Serena, um, that she knows that she's looking at an icon. And that's true of Osaka too, and you saw it in the beginning of the match. But there's something that Osaka was able to sort of draw on. She has those weapons. You know, she has the big serve. She has the big, you know, first strike forehand. She has a great backhand. You know, she's developing an all-court game, and she's able to play a little bit more defensively minded than maybe Serena's used to when she's facing people are trying to hit her off the court or capable of hitting her off the court. So it would take a big match from Serena to beat Osaka. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means that, um, yeah, that the expectations in those matches have, have certainly shifted. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two ways for Serena to win a slam at this point. I think she just has to, as Louisa said, serve really well. I mean, you've seen that with like Federer in his late career when he's been able to win. I mean, Djokovic in this tournament, just like adding more oomph to the serve. And like, if Serena's serving really well, she will win those service games. Like nobody, even the best returners in the world are not capable 
of of beating her when she's like totally on on her serve and and that's something that she's done in the past but just wasn't able to do in this match but also it's like tennis is not um serena williams versus naomi osaka there's a bunch of other players and a bunch of them could beat naomi if Serena's not capable of doing it at this point in her career for whatever reason. Like Naomi Osaka has won, I think, four of her last eight Grand Slams. So even if she maintains that pace and like half of these these slams, somebody else is, uh, has beaten her. So it's not impossible. I mean, the thing, Louisa, that I was hoping to see in this tournament was like, what's Coco Goff up to? And she like, lost in the second round to the fifth seed um, Svitolina, which is like absolutely not, you know, a a disappointing result for her um, at this point in her career, but she's still just 16 years old. And that to me is going to be the next big rivalry in the sport is going to be Coco versus Osaka. I I actually think Coco Goff um, didn't get a lot of attention maybe for the first time in her career <laughs> she, um, but she, she was like gone before i even like had the chance to watch her at all in this tournament um but at the same time she actually had a good tournament you know she won two rounds she lost to a player who should have beaten her um both in terms of seating and in terms of where their games are right now i think she can leave this tournament thinking like she made progress you know you win the matches you're supposed to win and you make progress in the matches you're not supposed to win and Sometimes you come out on top of those matches, but I think nobody was expecting her to to beat Svitolina. It would have been a, a big upset had she. And, and she turned 17 this year, which means that she yeah. can actually play a full schedule, a, a full schedule as opposed yeah. to the the limited one she was on before. I mean, she really has to improve her second serve. She has some she has some kind of glaring holes in her game, but um, obviously she's so young and she's so talented and she's by all accounts a hard worker that you know we have no reason to think that she's not going to. So yeah, that's. That's um that's a rivalry in the making and and you know the the great thing about women's tennis right now is, is its depth. It's not just that it's it's just not top heavy, but it's very 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 deep. Um, so Osaka has um, a lot of potential young rivals. Sabalenka, who Serena beat um, in this incredible shootout, um, is is in her early twenties. Um, and Osaka and Sabalenka faced each other in twenty eighteen um, in the fourth round in this really incredible match of, that could be also a you know foreshadowing a great rivalry in women's tennis if Sabalenka learns how to control her game a little bit. But the point is that there are a lot of potential you know great rivalries, and and so I think it's a pretty exciting time for for women's tennis. Yeah, the finalist was Jen Brady, who's in her twenties and and an American who played another young American in the semifinals, Jesse Pagula. So yeah, there does the depth is, is an issue here. The one thing that I wanted to before we move on to Djokovic and the men is that Serena was asked at the post um finals news conference if she was done basically. Um and she wound up sort of getting up from the table and and in tears and left. But it wasn't in response to the question, which I think was sort of misreported. But why are we fixating so much on whether Serena is going to retire? I don't see it in her character. Yes, she's 39, but she, in that that post-match press conference, she didn't mention Osaka's name. She didn't sort of credit her. She said that she lost the match. She played badly. Um, Wimbledon and the French Open are the next two tournaments, not in that order, um, where Osaka has not won yet. So it doesn't feel like Serena Williams is exiting. Absolutely. And we should be no in no rush to you know push her off the stage. Um, I do think that there is a preoccupation with 
you know, once someone, we see someone slip a little bit with age to sort of hurry them out the door. Um, I've been reading stories about how Roger Federer should be retiring um, while he still has his, you know, while he still has has his legs under him since like 2012, maybe. I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I've read um, that have been forecasting the exits of some of the of the great players in the game. But I think that um, one thing is that I think people really associate Serena Williams with winning and with dominance. And um, I think it shook a lot of people to see how um, easily she was beaten in that match that everyone was watching. Serena gets beaten all the time. You know, she lost in four finals coming into this match, but either people weren't maybe watching the matches in which she loses or people weren't, you know, there's a lot of reasons behind every um, match as there always is when someone loses. Um, And this, I think, was the first time that people sort of were like, wow, she's she's maybe not quite at the top of the game anymore. I think that the the public has always had a complicated relationship with Serena Williams' presence in the game. That's kind of speaking euphemistically. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are, you know, kind of are in a hurry to push her out the door, um, which is totally unfair she has every you know she's shown that she can stay at the top of the game for certainly the next year and you know probably as long as she wants to so I don't think she's going anywhere um Novak Djokovic looks like the number one player in the world still and Daniil Medvedev Louisa was like it, it feels strange to say this now after we saw what happened he was the favorite in that match, the betting favorite, at least. Um, he had won 20 matches in a row. He'd beaten Novak. Um, he's beaten him three times, I think. Um, but we saw in this tournament, you know, like with um, Tsitsipas beating Nadal, but then like really crumbling against Medvedev and then saying afterwards, like, I'm not ready to win at Grand Slam. There's still just something about these slams and slam finals where these younger guys who just look like they're about ready to like storm the sport and take it over, just cannot do it against the big three. But I guess especially against the big one at this point, which feels more appropriate when talking about Djokovic. Absolutely. I mean, Djokovic himself called Medvedev the player to beat, but when it came to it... amping up the pressure on the the (laughs) dude a little bit. I mean, one thing that there is a difference at these Grand Slam tournaments, which is that um, for the men, they play best of five. Um, so Medvedev can win, you know, Masters tournaments. He's at the level just below those slams, but those are best of three matches. Um, Medvedev won his first five set match, I believe, at this tournament. I mean, so this is pretty new to him, um, even though he's sort of at an age where, you know, someone like Nadal was already racking them up. So some of the some of these players are are quite young and they're and they're going to sort of settle into it. But Djokovic is just the best. I mean, he's just the best player in the world and probably ever. Um, and he showed it again. He showed just how supremely well he does controlling a match. Um, he's actually improved his game. His serve was the best it's ever been. Um, he was winning points that were, you know, between zero and four shots, which is the bulk of points. But he was also winning the medium length points and he was winning, you know, the points went longer than nine shots. I mean, he just was winning all the points. And he has this kind of ability to make players not play their best tennis, which is kind of uninspiring sometimes, but um, he did it against Medvedev and he does it against everyone else. And yeah, I mean, I guess he's going to keep doing it. So, <laughs> Do you think he really tore an oblique? It's just so hard. Well, A, the way that he looked in that match against Fritz, like clearly something 
was up. And I, I think he got lucky in the sense that like Fritz is a good player, but if he had done that against Medvedev, he would have lost. Like Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um I woke up to that match and I was like, I mean, I don't think he was lying that he was seriously injured and that was an acute injury. I mean, he was, he looked scared, you know, like it's not really kind of an emotion I'm seeing on Djokovic's face. Annoyed is an emotion, stressed, but like he actually looked like there's something wrong. And yeah, I don't, did he tear it? I'm, I have no idea. I mean, I have to trust him um, because. There's apparently going to be a documentary. He alluded to that. Like the person that it's like least surprising in sports that (laughs) that he would want to have a film crew. <laughs> yeah, Osaka also oblique. has a documentary, you know, going on. So that's the thing to do these days. But yeah, so I guess we'll find out, you know, don't hold your breath. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that he was seriously injured. I think that he does have a, a high pain threshold. And I also think he has like, you know, stretching. He, he's more flexible than everyone. So it sort of makes me believe that he can sort of learn how to come. He just has this kind of self-awareness about his body. And I I think probably he has um, some special ability to learn how to train his body to compensate for an injury. But that said, I don't know. All I know is what I saw against Fritz and then what I saw against in the final. And I'm like, well, that man is a machine. So there you go. (laughs) Last thing. um, This was the first, definitely the first Grand Slam ever with no lines people. All of the Lines were called by um, Hawkeye Live, the system where, you know, they, it's a simulation, but it, it shows whether the ball was, was in or out and it was done instantaneously. And Joel, the players seemed like, I don't know if they were confused or it's just like they had nobody to complain to. It's like, it, it's weird to see in sports, like not have that relationship between player and ref and it's like discombobulating as a fan but it seemed like for the players some of them found it like actually reduced the stress of playing and some of it i think found it actually disconcerting that there was no there's no like appeals court there's like nothing you can do you just have to like take it and move on well yeah i mean you can't beat a ref anyway right like i mean you know i think that was always the thing that coaches always told us I was like you you're never going to argue or ref into changing the call but I do think that it's to your point that they are like a useful locus of energy for people that like they're they're just sort of there as like relief you know like I can I have somebody to unleash on and then I can just sort of move move off Yeah, you need somebody to like get mad at and so it's not your fault right in in this universe like who who can you like blame for your for your failures other than yourself? And I have to believe it's sort of like a psychological. It's got to have a psychological effect on the players because look, that is part of their energy distribution during a match. That's um, built in that at some point I'm going to be upset about something and I have to regroup and focus on the next point. And in the absence of that, it was weird, right? I mean, there were times when you saw players like looking up at the screen you know, wanting to challenge or thinking, oh, I'll just watch it again. And they had the option of requesting, I guess, a review where they would play it on the big screen. But it didn't seem like players were availing of themselves of that very often. And maybe they settled into this. Is this going to continue, Louisa? Um, you know, I actually don't know. I mean, I'm sure that 
tennis tournaments will be happy. The, those that have the systems will be happy to reduce their costs as they always are. Um, but I'm sure that smaller tournaments are not going to be right. able to afford, you know, putting Hawkeye systems on every court. So, and it doesn't work. Um, it won't work on clay anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I also think, you know, I think that taking people off the court, it does kind of impoverish the game, not just because you lose that sort of, tension but because you you just lose people on the court i mean tennis is sort of lonely and solitary and enough as it is and i think it you know i think the more people we can bring into the game the better <laughs> but um yeah certainly novak Djokovic is probably happy yeah i was gonna say it reduces about. the number of people that novak Djokovic <laughs> yeah. can hit with a ball that's a great point no no chance to uh to default uh joker louisa thomas writes about tennis for the new yorker thank you as always for coming on the show with us louisa thank you The NBA tentatively plans to hold its annual player draft in November, and two of the prospects likely to be called early that evening are Jalen Green and Jalen Johnson. They'll both get there having taken very different paths to that ceremonial handshake with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. Call it a tale of two Jalens. The more highly regarded one is Jalen Green, who has spent the last few months going through the league's experimental program for elite prospects in the G League. Green skipped college for the chance to train with professionals in the Bay Area, playing with a handful of other top-rated teenagers on a team called G League Ignite. The other Jalen, Jalen Johnson, well, he made news last week when he announced that he was opting out of the rest of his freshman season at Duke. Johnson entered the season as a projected lottery pick, but that might be in doubt after an up-and-down 13 games in Durham. His decision to leave midway through the season was predictably divisive. So, Stefan, it's not surprising that in an unprecedented year of basketball, of unprecedented everything, really, that this would produce these kind of wildly different outcomes among top prospects. No, and the link between them and what we're seeing in, in, in college sports more broadly is that there's more player empowerment. The NBA was really smart. I mean, this is over a decade in the making. I think in 2009, I wrote a couple of pieces for The Atlantic about efforts to, 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 to do the Brandon Jennings route and go overseas. I hung out with Lance Stevenson when he was in high school and was mulling whether to go to college or go overseas. So this is a gradual blossoming of the realization that, look, there's got to be better routes here than one and dunning. And what the Jalen Johnson story shows is that in this crazy COVID season, even one and done is not something that you need to finish because the risks are too great. Duke is a 500 team. He has had some injuries and Johnson and his family and his representatives decided that we need to shut this down and get ready for the NBA. This is not worth it. So the Jalen Green side is much more proactive, right? It's about training to be an NBA player and being on a team with some other high school aged players who are being mentored by former NBA players. The league is run by uh, Sharif Abdurrahim. The sort of lead veteran on Ignite is Jarrett Jack. But Jack's playing a bunch of minutes, but he's got the four high school age players have the most minutes in addition to him on this team. And they're five and two. The thing that I find so interesting about this is that it seems to have been so well-designed and planned. Like, the salaries seem reasonably fair. They're giving um, them the right kind of 
approach around coaching and veterans and not just a bunch of young guys. And life they skills, get, yeah. They get college scholarships. So, yeah, the thing that's interesting is, like, what took so long? It doesn't seem like this was that complicated. And as you said, Stefan, this is in the works for 10 years. Seems like something you could have put together in a lot less time than that. And the reason that they did it ultimately was pressure from Australia, where LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton went, um, and pressure from other guys considering going abroad. But with all of the kind of like, you know, tut-tutting and clucking of tongues, concern trolling about, um, you know, young players and one and dones and perhaps a pros over the year, years, Joel, it just is striking to me that the NBA had just never cho- chosen to do anything about it until now. Yeah, well, I think that they realized that they were, you know, basically turning over the training and the development of the the future of their game to, you know, all these disparate, you know, institutions, you know, whether it was, you know, any random college, any random, you know, international league and all these other other paths. And if they don't take control over that, then, I mean, they're actually actively hurting their future products. So, of course, it made sense for them to do that. And And I also think about the fact that, you know, so there's all these paths into the NBA now, or it seems like there's an increasing number of them. And also, you know, we're probably looking at the next time there's a, a new CBA, there may be a change to the you know, draft eligibility rules and where they, they may allow high school players to enter the draft again. And I'm Yeah, so there's a question about whether this is just like some interim step, like maybe G League Ignite will only exist for like two years or something. Right, exactly. And, I, and, and, and through all this, I'm just wondering, what is college basketball going to do to compete? Um, they need to give top players a reason to play and to stay, right? Um, you know, they, so of course, obviously, the NBA is the one that comes up with these draft rules, and they're the ones that created the one-and-done phenomenon. But college basketball has had no problem taking advantage of the rules that benefit them, and they haven't done anything that would make it compelling for these top prospects to say, hey, look, maybe I should just swing by and play in the ACC for a year. Like, all these other alternatives look a lot more interesting. And- well, isn't one of the reasons, Joel, that the that we haven't seen this over the last decade or that it has taken this long for the NBA to do it is that the NBA has been supportive of college basketball. It has been reluctant to completely undermine college basketball. One of the reasons the draft el- eligibility rules changed whenever it was after, you know, after KG, Kevin Garnett, um, was that the NBA didn't want to discourage college and there was pressure there. And what we're seeing now is that the train is leaving. And, you know, I think the Ignite will continue, Josh, because it, I think they're going to find that, look, the NBA draft is only two rounds. Not that many high school players are going to get drafted. Um, They're still going to be a handful of, competitive players that are going to be able to benefit from this environment. And it would be foolish for the NBA to get rid of it after a year or two, because they're letting, you know, five or six high school kids get drafted. Yeah. It'll be interesting if a guy like Jalen green in a universe where he could go straight to the NBA would consent to being on this development team, as opposed to being going straight to an NBA bench Um, I think you can imagine 
a version of this where like the other guys who are on this team now, like Jonathan Kaminga, et cetera, would be on Ignite, but maybe Jalen Green would be on an NBA roster. Um, who's, who's, who's to say? But the thing about college basketball is that it's like free promotion and, you know, free training that the NBA doesn't have to, you know, spend any kind of marketing budget or even these kind of relatively low rent salaries on these guys. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's an indication that they see the writing on the wall and that they think that college basketball is weak and, and crumbling and are maybe less interested now in trying to prop it up. Well, and I wonder, Joel, you look at this season, Kentucky is not good. Duke is not good. There are other teams that typically are in the top 25 that are not. Michigan State. Are there players, high school players, that are looking at this now and going, oh, I read about Jalen Green, and that dude's putting in, you know, he's scoring 17 points a game, playing against men, and getting all of this assistance and still making half a million dollars for the season. That's looking a little more, you know, attractive. Yeah, everything is so unprecedented about this year, though, right? Because... It's it's really tough to compare what college basketball normally is with what it is this year because, you know, let's, let's just say you dream of playing college basketball. Well, this isn't remotely like your dream. There are no Cameron crazies. There's no opportunity to play at North Carolina or Virginia with a crowded arena and experience that rivalry for what it is. There's not even like a lively campus atmosphere on most of these colleges right now. So, I mean, there's not, you know... <laughs> I can totally understand why somebody like Jalen Johnson looks at that and says, well, wait, what am I like? I'm, I, you know, our team might not even make the tournament and we don't even know what the tournament is going to look like this year compared to other tournaments. So why would I like put this multi-million dollar investment that is myself at risk for a dream that's not even really a dream this year? So, yeah, Stefan, you mentioned that, you know, maybe these athletes are looking at, you know, what's happening this year and they say maybe we should try that G League thing or whatever. And I wonder if... Because even this year is so weird and so unprecedented that it's really tough to take anything from it. But I also think back to when Leonard Fournette bailed on LSU in the Citrus Bowl to protect his draft status. And guys were like, well, wait a minute. You're right. Those games are exhibitions. Why would I put my body on the line? Why would I put my, quote, draft status on the line for an exhibition? Which is what all of this basically is, right? Yeah, Totally. I do think that, like, Cade Cunningham at Oklahoma State, who's probably going to be the number one pick, like, he's having probably, for the pandemic college basketball season, the best outcome one could have. Like, he's had a bunch of, like, game-winning shots. He's been able to, like, test himself against some of the best teams and players in the country. And, like, he's only elevated his, um, you know, reputation among NBA scouts, like LaMelo Ball going to Australia didn't seem to hurt. Like he actually seemed to have helped his reputation by going there and like getting out of America. And he's been really good for Charlotte, I think has exceeded or at least met expectations. And so I think ultimately, no matter what these guys do, if you're really good, you'll be fine. I think it's probably... And it, it, this conversation can feel a little bit weird because with like the one and done thing, it's just like a clear injustice that affects an extremely small number 
of players and like the bigger injustice is just like college sports more broadly. Um, but these guys are like important as like symbols and repre- representations um, in addition to being like human beings that we should like value their their experience. But like when you see a guy like Jalen Green succeed in this path that influences the culture, the like larger culture around like basketball and amateur basketball and pro basketball. And so it'll be the like, you know, not guys one through three, maybe who are like ultimately are most affected by it, but guys like four through 200. Right. Cause every piece of publicity off of Jalen green, I mean, I read a piece by, we read a piece by Michael Lee in the Washington post. I'm sure there've been features on ESPN and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff on social media about him that is going to make players four through 100 go, wow, I didn't even know about that. Or this looks real. Well, you know, and, and what's really interesting to me is that of like, let's just, you know, kind of limit this era of college basketball to maybe the last 10, 15 years, right? Where there's, you know, sort of the change and, you know, summer basketball and all that stuff. I can really only think of one guy who was clearly helped by going to college basketball in terms of elevating his status and increasing his uh, visibility. And that's Zion Williamson, right? Like that's one guy who notably went to college and was able to sort of trade on that and turn himself into a star. Where for these other guys, it almost sort of doesn't matter. Like they could go to college. They don't necessarily have to go to college. But the the biggest thing of this to me is that like none of this, none of this is a suitable arrangement in the whole scheme of things in terms of taking on the injustice of college players not getting paid because, okay, Jonathan Kuminga, uh, Jalen Green get $500,000 this year. Great. That handful of guys. But like there have been a number of studies um, that have shown that a starting basketball player on any of the, you know, the Power Five programs, they're worth about $800,000 to $1.2 million a year. So like even... Even the guys that you think of as elite that are getting paid, you know, $500,000 a year to play for G League at night, it's still nothing really tap into what they're actually worth. And this isn't a suit. This like so this shouldn't be posed as like some sort of solution for the top athletes or even any of the athletes that go on to play in college basketball, because it's not they're still not getting what they deserve. It's just another path so that they don't have to play a part in this particular form of exploitation. Right. And and that's what made, to me, the reaction to Jalen Johnson opting out of Duke at this point in the season so, you know, predictably awful. Um, quitting on his team, not being a great teammate, it's going to hurt his draft stock. Um, the, 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 the total lack of you know, concern for him and his future. I mean, yeah, not surprising, but given everything else, I mean, Duke was living in a hotel. I mean, they still are the players. The Duke women's team canceled its entire season at the behest of the players. Mike Shashevsky canceled the entire non-conference schedule in December. Quitter. And, wait, and, and shit, he, he was the one that said, he suggested maybe they should shut down the season. In December yes. Too. Mike Shashevsky, He's the person who has undergone the least amount of inconvenience in this scenario, right? He's rich. He's p- getting paid. He's at home. The system still works for him even in, amid a pandemic. And even he was like, I don't know if I want to do this. This doesn't seem so fun. So imagine if you're Jalen Johnson and you're hurt and you're putting it on the line and your team isn't even any good and this all sucks for you too. I mean, of course he would be a person that would be like, well, why, why would I go through this? It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, I mean, anything that anybody 
does any player does during the pandemic is uh, not susceptible to any of like the tropes we have about quitting and being a good teammate. Like that doesn't, it's, it's not, that's not the right conversation to have this year. Um, And, you know, you could argue that it's never appropriate to have that conversation about college sports when they're not getting paid. I, I, I think there's actually some room for debate and disagreement there. Like if this was a normal year and the guy is like not hurt and he like left with a month to go, I think you could have like an argument about like, is that actually a shitty thing to do to your team and your teammates? But that's like not what we should be talking about this year. And I guess the final thought that I would have about this whole thing is that like, there was like a G league ignite before G league ignite and that's Kentucky. Um, It is. And Calipari saw that um, as the role he was playing would talk publicly about Kentucky as being a finishing school for young prospects. And it often has functioned that, that way. I think, you know, you're right to single out Zion, Joel, but I don't think Anthony Davis or, you know, Michael Kidd Gilchrist, who was number two in the draft. Like, I think there are a lot of guys who went to Kentucky and given the system that was in place then and to a large extent now would not say that they were screwed by that experience. So it it is, I think, good. It's like an iterative improvement to have that system now be one where you can actually get paid and have it be through the auspices in the NBA rather than this like weird, like kind of bizarro version of it that happens within the like amateur NCAA model. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I um I mean this is better, you know. I mean we're getting closer to something that appears like a, a, a better system for the players um, and something that it, I, I don't think any of us on this podcast are like fans of the NCAA. So I definitely think that this is something that is, you know, going to make the NCAA have to compete and do something different. And if if that's all that the G League Ignite accomplishes, then fantastic. But I want to ask you guys a question. Do you guys know who's on the G League Ignite team? You know, one of the one of the veterans. Uh, Amir Johnson. Jared Jack, too. I mentioned Jared Jack. Yeah, I mentioned Jared Jack. Okay, so Jared Jack played in the 2004 Final Four, and this is going to make all of us feel so old. Jalen Green was born in 2002. I mean, I can only imagine what that locker room is like for Jared Jack. What is he doing? Why is he playing in the G League? He's mentoring mentoring our our young people. That is why he says he's doing it. Okay. He's putting up 13 points a game, too, for (laughs) really good nights. I'm I'm sure those 13 points aren't all in the name of mentoring. But I mentioned the Amir Johnson thing. I think Michael Lee mentioned in his piece, he was the last guy to be drafted right out of high school. And I don't know if they put him on the team specifically for that reason, but there is a nice kind of synergy there. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Zion Williamson, the New Orleans Pelicans' 20-year-old, 285-pound point guard. Now he's wreaking havoc on the NBA. Havoc, I tell you. To hear that conversation, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I like to think of myself as a compassionate person, and every so often I experience a small, sympathetic pang for Frederick Weiss. As you probably remember, Weiss was the seven foot two French basketball player over whom, literally over whom, legs splayed, crotch to the crown of the head, Vince Carter dunked in the 2000 Olympics. If Twitter had existed, a million people would have simultaneously tweeted, I'd like to report a murder. The French press dubbed the incident the dunk of death. Carter's dunk quite literally might have killed poor Frederick Weiss's NBA career. He had been drafted in the first round by the Knicks, but never played a game in the league. I had that little twinge on Friday after Anthony Edwards of the Timberwolves committed a capital crime against poor Yuta Watanabe of the Raptors. Watanabe is on a two-way G League contract, and let's hope he doesn't get sent down soon because it'll look like Frederick Weiss part two. Let's listen. Turned over, Anthony Edwards, that time he does finish with the exclamation point. Watanabe got his feelings hurt on this one. I mean, that is absolutely filthy. After the game, Edwards said he didn't care about the dunk because his team lost and he shot three for 14 from the field, et cetera, et cetera. Joel, you know that Edwards watched that clip like 500 times over the weekend. Whatever happens in his career, he'll be making greatest dunk videos forever. So this is how you know that this is a real-time reaction on my part because I had not just heard the audio of this clip before. Has anybody pointed out that they were playing the song Murder Was the Case in the background with, uh, with that dunk? I mean, I, did that happen before or after the dunk? I don't <laughs> but, um But yeah, no, I mean, like everybody else, that's one of the best in-game dunks I've ever seen in my life. Like there's this, the degree of difficulty. He started his jump from outside of the lane. He got up over a six foot eight defender and he got up so high and so clean, like his head is above the rim and as you can hear from the clip, he brought it down with so f- so much force. Um, it, it's, it had pretty much every element of a great dunk that you'd be looking for. And the thing that was interesting to me about Anthony Edwards, because he's, in terms of personalities, he's like one of my favorite professional athletes going right now. He just has this great, I call it an Atlanta-ass attitude. Like, he's just very Atlanta. Um, and if people who have lived in Atlanta probably know what I'm talking about. But he had this, like, very singular response to the dunk, which was like, what? Look, look what I did. You know what I'm saying? Like usually with other great dunks, like there's like a flex or a mean mug or somebody pretends to be like theatrically stunned at their own feet. But like Anthony was like, oh man, that was pretty cool. And um, yeah, just like, it's just a reminder of the athletic talent and explosiveness that made Edwards the number one pick. Like I hope that this is the start of something for him. But even if it's not, he has this to add to the canon. Uh, indeed he does. Yeah, the thing that I find kind of mysterious is that despite his presence very robustly in your intro, Stefan, I do not feel like Yuta Watanabe has been kind of talked about as a main character 
in this dunk in the same way that Frederick Weiss was and trying to puzzle through why that is. Because obviously the reason why we're talking about this is because he dunked on that dude. Like it's not the same if there's like nobody in the lane, nobody to give a sense of scale, nobody to, you know, just power to be the foil over. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like Yuta Watanabe, different than Frederick Weiss, because he didn't get jumped over in the exact same way. But also, he's like just anonymous enough. Like, if Yuta Watanabe had been, I don't know, uh, Kyle Lowry, or if it had, it had been, you know, uh, Pascal Siakam or something, then. Joel, you're shaking your your head. You don't. Don't, have to, don't, don't you think it's because he's not seven foot two? Like, I mean, the if he had been seven foot two, then I think that this becomes. You remember along the lines of that Carter dunk, right? Like that makes it that much more special because Watanabe is only six eight, which is, I mean, clearing and dunking on a six foot eight guy is is, it, is an impressive feat. But he's not seven two, right, Josh? So. He's not seven two, but I I do feel like he will not be remembered for, but just based on early returns it doesn't seem like he's going to be remembered for this forever in the same right. way that frederick vice was well which is interesting josh because you know the foil needs to be i think someone semi-anonymous the way frederick vice was and the way you watanabe is i don't think it could you know if if, if he had done that against another nba star i don't know that the reaction is the same it's good to have a sort of Washington generals <laughs> on a dunk like that. Well, okay. Let's talk about, um, we're, we're going to get into our favorite dunks or most memorable dunks. And so let's roll right into that one that I occasionally enjoy just firing up for all time's sake is the Deandre Jordan on Brandon Knight, where he sent him out of the screen on. And, and that was one on an alley-oop lob from Chris Paul to uh, Jordan and he just got up really high and like need the dude into another dimension. And Brandon Knight was like on the ground for a while. There was a certain like kind of just totally defeated <laughs> countenance on him. He that stayed re- there that, for a while, well, right? See, that's like he, like he laid on the ground, man. I mean, he made it worse. Don't you think? I mean, if he had just got popped up to his feet, like maybe it wouldn't have seemed quite as bad. So that that dunk just had elements that the Anthony Edwards dunk was lacking. You had the DeAndre Jordan stink face after he made it, which was incredibly memorable. You had Karan Butler laughing. Um, <laughs> you had Knight just on the ground looking like literally he had been killed. So while I, I don't mean to diminish the Anthony Edwards dunk. I, I feel like the Jordan one is useful to look at in terms of like the taxonomy of the different elements that you can have in an all-time great dunk. And, and you know, the opposite of that, I said like it's helpful to have a foil who's not famous. I mean, one of my favorite dunks, and this is part fandom, is John Starks going left-handed over Horace Grant and Michael Jordan in the 1993 playoffs. Um, and it's partly because he takes two huge steps to get to the rim and does a sort of demi windmill to get the ball out in space and throws it down over them. And in that case, it's who he's doing it to. I mean, the Knicks of course lost every fucking series they played against the bulls in the nineties. And that was depressing, but this was sort of the salvation moment. And I think like the historical context sometimes matters. And in the John Starks dunk, I think it does. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, right? Especially about the Knicks losing, because I was watching that uh, ESPN top 15 dunks list, and it has, you know, Pippen Duncan on, on Ewing, which is a series that the Knicks actually won. Um, and I didn't think that Pippen's dunk was that great, to be honest. I mean, I thought it, I thought it was cool. You know, it was fine, but I didn't, it wasn't special. The thing but, that's memorable about that one is that he kind of pushed Ewing after yeah, and he then like stepped over, right him. over him. And then, yeah, went to Spike Lee and told him to sit his ass down. Um, but probably, and this is, you know, people are going to accuse me of bias here, but I think probably the dunk that made me most leap out of my seat was T-Mac uh, dunking on Brad on Sean Bradley when he played with the Dallas Mavericks. And I, because, I mean, Sean Bradley, seven foot six. Once again, you've got like scaling this t- this tall building, right? And it just was so humiliating. It like, it, in a way, it like encapsulated all of Sean Bradley's career, which in which everybody in the NBA seemed to like be a... <laughs> Like, they just seemed to be a magnet to the rim. Like, as soon as they saw him there, they were like, oh, yeah, I got to go climb that. And it just felt like I don't remember Sean Bradley playing another minute in the NBA after that. Uh, And I'm sure he did, but it just didn't feel like I ever saw it happen again. Joel, you have to take some points off because everybody dunked on Sean Bradley. (laughs) That's true. But he was seven foot six and he was the perfect foil. Right. He was. So McGrady's was was in the taxonomy that definitely... That that, that qualifies. I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, and I, you know, I it's probably uncomfortable, but <laughs> I was trying to find like the NBA players are kind of racist the way they treated Sean Bradley. I was just, I don't know, <laughs> just seeing this white guy get dunked on all the time. I don't know, I just, <laughs> I don't know. It's like his presence in the league offended them, uh, and they actively <laughs> went after him. But uh, <laughs> but um, hey, man, that's kind of racism I signed up for. But yeah. Uh, there yeah. was a dunk in the ESPN Top 15 uh, of uh, Tom Chambers on Mark Jackson. Ooh, Ooh. and that just, one just saying. And didn't he hit him with the knee? I think I think Tom Chambers hit him with a knee, knee in the chin. knee in the throat. Yeah, yeah knee in the chin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, look, man, I give Tom Chambers. I mean, that that that's another one of those dunks that people just kind of forget. And Tom Chambers being like one of the NBA's great dunkers kind of gets overlooked yeah. a lot too because <laughs> it happened a long time ago. The Miz is in the '80s, right? So. Well, that top 15 also included Shaq bringing down the backboard, which at number nine, and that felt bogus to me because he wanted to do it. He hung up there and yanked as hard as he could. It was planned. Do you feel like they've done a better job uh, reinforcing the backboards and like making the glass unbreakable? Because the the ultimate dunk would be one of the ones we were talking about, plus the backboard comes down. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the the league seems to want to deprive us of that ultimate moment. You know, I think that's interesting. The kids have been sort of denied um, the explosion piece of dunking. Like when we grew up, like you would every now and again see somebody dunk so hard that the backboard would explode and it would shatter into pieces of glass. And in fact, people that are old enough to have played video games on a computer. So there was the, the Dr. J versus Larry Bird one on one computer game, and one of the things that would happen is that if they dunked in such a way, the backboard would shatter. And I kind of miss that. Like, I know that it was dangerous. So you shouldn't have glass flying all around the court uh, <laughs> on people. But I kind of I miss that the Daryl Dawkins days when guys would, you know, bring a goal down and tear a rim off and stuff, you know? There should be like one game a year where they make the backboard. They don't tell anybody in advance, but they make the backboard out of like some fake movie glass. And just have it shatter. And then, like, it can be, like, the the secret word on Pee-wee's Playhouse where just, like, the confetti comes down and all this stuff happens. <laughs> they, can, they can plan for it, but it would just be, like, a random game on, like, an NBA league pass on a Thursday night. It would be, a, it would be amazing promotion. 
Yeah, you got to have it with a, a, a team, though, that has a known dunker, like, you know, somebody like Donovan Mitchell or somebody like that. Like, you can't, you know, if, you, if you're having it against the Warriors, it probably is not going to do the same thing. But, yeah, like, that would be awesome. I think that I think the kids should get that wonder. I think, And I think that's, like, I don't know about you all, but, like, the dunk is what made one of the things that made basketball appealing to me as a sport. Like, it was one of the fun things. And it's one of those things that very few people can sort of relate to. It, it emphasizes like the difference between us and them in terms of athleticism. Like these guys can like get up there like that and, and, and do something that not very many humans on this earth can do. And the way historically the dunk was wielded as a tool to prevent fans from enjoying particularly African-American basketball players from doing amazing things is shameful. I mean, the NCAA banned dunking from 67 to 76, the Alcindor rule, a lot of people called it, right? And that, you know, and then, and it was put into effect after an all black starting five at Texas Western beat Kentucky in the 66 championship game. But also as this article you sent around, Stefan noted, because of the University of Houston's pregame dunking display at the 1967 Final Four. Joel, Houston was just so awesome yes. that the white powers that be of the sport were <laughs> like, we've got, we got to regulate uh, this, this black team from doing all these awesome dunks. I was going to say something. I know that sometimes my steady stream of Houston talk can be a little bit obnoxious. Well, this, in this uh, case, no, this it's appropriate. Not but, appropriate. Yeah, yeah, but right. But in terms of like my view of sports, like growing up there and watching teams was part of my formative sports fandom experience. And the first team that I loved growing up was Five Slamma Jamma. Um, and so like that, they're sort of the inheritors of that, you know, that those early U of H teams that were the first to integrate and, you know, the dunk and everything. And, you know, I think like, like we said in that story, that Stefan sent around and that we're going to link to that the day after the dunking display at the, uh, 1967 final four, the NCAA banned dunking for like a decade. But th- see, that's the thing that I love, um, about like the ingenuity of basketball because Guy V. Lewis, who was U of H's head coach at the time, loved the dunk and encouraged his players to do it. And he insisted on it. He said it was a high percentage shot. Now, remember back then, Coach Lewis is 60 years old, right? Like He's already an old white guy from Arp, Texas, who is like, this is something that we can use as an advantage. And so the, I, whenever I see people try to discount the meaning of dunks or ain't nothing but two points, I just always think about that history of the game that like, People have always been sort of trying to malign dunking as like unskilled or like primitive or something, but like it actually is an effective and highly efficient shot. And it also makes a lot of fans of people. And of course, the NCAA wanted to get rid of it because why would the NCAA make like smart rules, right? So let's do a quick poll um, on this Anthony Edwards dunk. Do you guys feel like in 10 years this will be a dunk that will be on these compilations or do you think it'll? be kind of ephemeral because the one that I've been thinking about is the Giannis dunk over Tim Hardaway Jr. on the break in 2018. I've been watching it on a GIF just on repeat as I've been talking to you guys. But I remember the night that that happened, that kind of breaking the internet um, and Giannis literally jumped over a dude on the fast break. And it was the most incredible thing that I'd ever seen. But I feel like kind of shockingly, it's not, you know, three years later, a dunk that people are still talking about. And I'm not sure why. And so I guess I'm asking you guys to prognosticate. Do you feel like 
this Anthony Edwards dunk will be will, will still retain its power in a month or a year or ten years? I, I think it's tough, man. Um, you know, there's so many, there's so much information to hold into our heads now, and so many memories <laughs> to hold in our head now about everything. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that we'll remember a time that a Timberwolf banged on a Raptor in a mid-February game <laughs> with no stakes. Like, like the thing about the Baron Davis dunk over Andre Karolinko, which is another one of my favorites, right, is that it happened in the playoffs, and those were the We Believe Warriors. And, and he pulled his shirt out. He pulled his shirt, which revealed a torso that was surprisingly punchy for an NBA player. But, <laughs> but uh, Yeah, maybe Anthony Edwards didn't, like, sell it enough. Yeah. Right? He, like, was still a little too cool about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it's got, it has a lot going for it. You know, he dunks over a bigger guy, four inches taller. He dunks over sort of a hapless foil, anonymous NBA player. It's more humiliating in some ways when that happens. And I think pure humiliation is the secret to uh, a lasting dunk video. And I think this has it. Yeah, he, he fell in the way that only a 19-year-old can fall, by the way, in a dunk. Like, just, you know, just get up, pop right up, not a big deal. The land is okay. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. And I thought we could uh, go with uh, another dunk that is historic. Not impressive because the video is super grainy and you can't really see what's going on. It is the first dunk by a woman in a uh, college game in 1984. George Ann Wells of West Virginia did it in a little gym in Elkins, West Virginia against the University of Charleston. There were only like 100 people there. Reed Albergati of the Wall Street Journal did a terrific piece about this in 2009. It was believed for like 25 years that there was no video of this dunk. And the reason is that the coach of the University of Charleston was kind of a jerk. He had it. And whenever anyone asked for it, he would say that it didn't exist. We had stopped filming the game after halftime. He felt embarrassed that his team was the first team to allow a, a, a woman to dunk against it. So he hid the tape. Um, and Albergati reported it out and tracked down the coach's son. The coach had died. The son found a box of VHS cassettes in the attic. And one of them said 1984 Elkins. And that was the game. And Reed told me over the weekend that he put it on a CD. And when he went to interview George Ann Wells, played it for her. It was the first time she had ever seen it. And she broke down in tears. It's great. Josh, what's your George Ann Wells? Great uh, afterball name. Totally, uh, totally deserving, George Ann Wells. So I spent a little bit of time looking into posterization, the concept, and where it came from. Um, reference being that when you dunk on a Yuta Watanabe type, you are putting them on a poster and... There's some stuff online in the Wikipedia entry for a poster dunk and, and elsewhere 
that says it was first used in reference to Dr. J. And I was not actually able to track that down. I was able to find a story from the Philadelphia Tribune in 1978 about Dr. J poster day and the the poster capturing one of his patented slam dunks. I don't know if that's what the reference is, that there was a a Dr. J poster. Um, I found another story from um, the LA Times in 1982 um, that talks about a freshman basketball player at USC who was really good at at dunking, who had a life-size poster of Julius Irving on the wall of his dorm room. So Dr. Dr. J was involved with dunking and with posters. Uh, We can confirm that. But with the help of uh, America's leading uh, wordsmith, Stefan Fatsis, I was able to uh, determine that, you know, the first reference, at least that we could find, was by uh, Michael Wilbon in 1991 in the Washington Post, writing about actually not a dunk, about the famous quote-unquote spectacular move by Michael Jordan in the NBA Finals against the Lakers, where he switched hands um, in midair to have a lefty layup. And Wilbon wrote, um, there was no indication that Sam Perkins would jump an attempt to block MJ shot. Probably Perkins just wanted to get out of the way and not be, quote, posterized, which is what happens when the donkey is humiliated by the dunker. And we have to assume that this is a very early reference because Wilbon doesn't just say posterized. He then, in the phrase afterwards, explains what the term means. That's called glossing. When you okay. gloss a, a term. I was also, just backtracking a little bit, able to find a 1989 story um, in the Chicago Tribune, which includes this tidbit. Magic guard Scott Skiles said he was surprised when a youngster asked him to sign his poster of Skiles. There are no National Basketball Association posters of Skiles. As it turned out, it was a poster of Jordan dunking over Skiles. I should have asked for royalties, said Skiles. So again, the concept of posterization had been established at least by the late 80s, if not the term posterized. But um, I'm going to now um, give some of my time back over to Mr. Fatsis, the word nerd, and uh, let, let him enlighten us further. All right, well, the, the verb posterize actually goes back, according to Merriam-Webster, to 1943, meaning just to print on a poster or to make a poster, which is why you see some of those posterizing in sports referring to literally posters. I got very excited at one point this morning when I was doing one of these database hunts for the first term, and I was like posterize and like basketball, and it was like, oh, yeah, it was like Julius Irving on a poster. Um so I think we're going to assume that 91 and Will Bond is probably an earlier citation that if we had more time, we could find. But that seems about right in terms of when um, posterize became a thing. Um, and when I did my couple of years embed at, at Merriam-Webster, I actually defined posterize in the sports sense. And I'm very proud to note that it has been added to the online dictionary. Um, it Whoa. was one of the words that I got in. Um, it, it went through a pretty heavy edit by my editor. Um, but <laughs> the writer never complains no. about, yeah. about the edit, Stefan. Yeah. Come on, have, some, have yeah. some grace. I'm being, I'm not complaining. I'm just being upfront. I don't want people to think art. I wrote these words exactly. So he, they, we had ended, I had defined one sense. Uh, he added a sense. U.S. sports informal to make a memorable and visually striking play against 
in parens and opponent, and then especially basketball to make a forceful and overpowering dunk shot over parens an overmatched defensive player. And uh, there are two quotations in there. One of them I supplied the Sixers rookie used two hands to posterize Harper grabbing his first highlight real worthy dunk since being drafted in June. I'll also say that in 2014 on this program, I did an afterball about sports words that should be added to Scrabble because they had just done a, a dictionary update. And one of them was posterize. You've been and, a foremost uh, advocate for posterize for quite yeah. a long time. Yeah. Well, I followed through, Didn't man. I like yeah. I, I highlighted it, and then I had the chance to do something about it. I took action, and now it's in the dictionary. It's got an anagram I noted in that piece: poetizers. Posterizers. <laughs> thank you for thank you for that. Um, I wonder if this is going to be one of those things, Joel, like how uh, people of a certain age, uh, a certain youthful age, like don't know the the phone icon mm. like because it's yeah right. they, they, don't, they, like don't, that they don't know what a landline phone looks like like i wonder if people of uh younger younger than us will be like well we'll know that posterization is a thing but like be unfamiliar with the concept of like a poster of an nba player <laughs> dunking on another player yeah i mean first of all they i guess they don't make those anymore were those replaced by like the fat heads or whatever because i think the fat head was sort of the next was the evolution in the poster, um, but Did yeah, you have I, posters, Joel. Oh man! I, I, in fact, I mean, I was kind of a nerd about it. Like, um, I, I had a, a handful, and I went through the whole process of getting them framed. Like, I bought them, and I would have you know, like the edges on them and everything. Oh yeah, I had a Magic Johnson one. I had a Dion one when he was with the Forty ers I had Warren Moon. I had a, per, a one sign from Scottie Pippen that was on my closet door. I had one from Emmett Smith. I don't even like Emmett Smith. So wait, you had an autographed Scotty poster, and yet you have the gall, the unmitigated gall, to say that his dunk over Patrick Ewing was only just okay. I went to Scotty Pippen's basketball camp at the University of Central Arkansas in 1990 and 91, and uh, so I had to stay on campus in Conway, Arkansas for a week. This is the first time I've been away from home. And I was like, well, it might be worth it if Scottie Pippen's going to be there. You know, like you're thinking Scottie Pippen showed up for a few minutes on the first day and was there for a few minutes on the last day. But the only thing that really, you know, I got out of that thing besides, you know, hooping up Pippen's cousins from Hamburg, Arkansas, I really I kind of wore the ass out. But uh, in addition to that, we got that signed autograph from Scottie Pippen. And uh, so, you know, I was like, "Well, well, at least I got that out of it, you know. Before we wrap this up, I want to just note that in my piece, um, my afterball about sports words, two things. One, there was this line, another hoops word whose time has come in, is posterized, as in, remember when Vince Carter posterized Frederick Weiss at the Olympics. Um, some other words that were in that piece, headbutt, I defined that too and got it into Merriam-Webster. Whoa. Okay. Thank you. Three-peat which is in, I didn't define that, ribby as in ribby as in RBI in baseball, R-I-B-B-I-E. Um, that's in now face plant hyphenated is finally in the dictionary and vuvuzela too, I had mentioned. There were a bunch in there that did not get in. Bracketology, decleate. I defined decleate, has not gotten in. That should be in. Should, should somebody talk about pack? Because do you all remember, are you all old enough to remember when people would say, if you, if you block somebody's shot, it was called a pack? 
No. No idea. You guys don't remember that? I felt Never somebody that. somebody write in or, or, or reach us on Twitter or something. Because when back in the 80s, if you block somebody, we called it a pack. P-A-C-K? You, yeah, P-A-C-K. I packed that dude. Or you Maybe got that's packed. like a regional Houston-ism. Uh, yeah, we are. But we are I innovators. Just, I, just, I just can't believe we like passed by Joel's story and just didn't really note the pain and mm. sadness that like clearly you're still you're still not over being snubbed by Scotty Pippen. I just want to say I heard that. I uh, heard it in well, I mean, in your voice. I mean, I you, I had to spend a whole week in Conway, Arkansas. You know, no offense, but I mean, you know, I mean the least he could have done was stuck around a little bit, you know. Keith Pippen wasn't enough of an attraction. If I'd known I was going to spend more time with Keith Pippen than Scotty Pippen, I might have not gone. That is our show for today. Our producer this week is Jasmine Ellis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.